Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Kristen Albright, CEO of Procarium. So, Kristen, can you start us off with an elevator pitch of what Procarium does? Yeah, Liv, thanks for having me today. So, Procarium is a venture-backed biotechnology company based in London. Our vision is to create living cures. And what I mean by living cures is programming bacteria, similar to what you would do with a computer, to allow it to have both spatial and temporal release of whatever therapeutic molecules you want or other types of cargo. Um, our foundational technology is a live bacterial strain, um, Salmonella typhi, uh, which most people would associate with typhoid disease, but we've actually tamed it down um, so that it can infect the human body in, in the way that we want. Interesting. So I did want to ask you a little bit about <laughs> Salmonella and why the choice of Salmonella as opposed to another bacterial strain. I'm so happy you just said, why salmonella? Most people say, why bacteria? Oh. <laughs> That's even a harder question to yeah. answer sometimes. Um, so, so why salmonella typhi? So salmonella typhi is a very specific strain of salmonella. Um, it's a human-specific pathogen, meaning it has evolved over millions of years on how to actually infect the human body and, and have the immune system react to it. So what we're doing, instead of creating something, we're just leveraging evolution. Um, Salmonella typhi in the oncology setting is quite important because it's intracellular bacteria. Um, it homes naturally to tumors. Um, and unlike a lot of the, the competitive, I would say, AAV or viral technologies, the packaging capacity of bacteria is significant. So in the future, again, part of Precarium's mission is to be able to pack cargo and deliver cargo to the tumor site. So this allows us actually to uh, yeah, deliver uh, therapeutic molecules or anything that, that you would want to deliver. Interesting, so the salmonella essentially acts as like the vehicle that brings what you need to the tumor. Exactly, um, but, but in addition, the salmonella typhi strain we use is actually a therapeutic in its own right as an immunotherapy. And our lead program for bladder cancer um, will be just a salmonella typhi bacteria alone as an immunotherapy. And um, what got you into Procarium? Yeah, so Procarium is, like I mentioned, is quite a unique company. Not many people are in this field of microbial immunotherapy, so using mm -hmm. live bacteria. Um, again, taking a step back, live bacteria was actually the first cancer immunotherapy ever approved by the US FDA and that was the BCG vaccine, or the tuberculosis vaccine for bladder cancer. But actually, bacteria's use in oncology goes all the way back into the late 1800s with a, a doctor called um, Dr. Coley, who was mm -hmm. looking uh, at patients with incurable tumors. And he found that if it, he infected a patient with bacteria, and at the time it's known as Coley's toxins, and the patient got a fever and a bacterial infection, it actually was able to, to cure the tumor and the cure the patient. So a lot of this knowledge has been ongoing for, for almost a century, but as you know, with science, it, it moves quite rapidly. And it wasn't until genetic engineering actually became affordable and, and kind of commonplace um, did, did we put the combination of the immune system, immunology, oncology, and synthetic biology together. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's quite a unique journey. Why I joined Precarium is I was previously at a venture capital fund, um, early stage VC mm -hmm. fund investing in startups out of university, so academia. Um, and, and now I'm not knocking the science. I think PD1 has done amazing for the industry. And um, 
I think antibodies also. I used to work at J and J, working on antibodies for for um, autoimmunity. As you know, as a startup founder, you kind of have to be passionate about what you do. And I think the synthetic biology field has been untouched in biotech yet. The combination of that, and I thought it was a really good time to, to bring those two fields together. And so you were in a early stage VC. Um, was it difficult to move into being a builder essentially from the, the VC kind of comfort zone? Not, yes and no, it's actually quite hard. Um, so prior to VC, I had, I've been in the industry 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I've also spent time in medical affairs, so late stage clinical development, financial forecasting, so BD, M&A, and VC. So kind of putting all those together, I would say no. Um, the hardest transition I would say is the value of the VC gave me is what good looks like. Because I think as mm -hmm. a startup founder or as a CEO, there is this um, formula that isn't published anywhere of what good looks like. And that could be what your data, your killer experiments in the preclinical setting. It mm -hmm. could be what the team looks like. Um, so I think what I learned a lot in the VC is, is what does good look like? Um, and I think that's quite an important thing to have at an early stage company. And was that VC specifically looking at like tech bio biotech as well? So yeah, so the, the venture capital fund had both the tech and life science team, uh, mainly seed series A. So mm -hmm. investing in startups, uh, commercializing intellectual property from universities. So um, at a high level, what does good look like? <laughs> Very good question. Mm -hmm. um, it's, to be honest, it's a combination of, of the science, the team, and also more broadly, the, the people that you surround yourself with, your network. Mm -hmm. um, the team is important. I think personally, a team that runs your seed series A may not be the same team that runs your series B and beyond. So I think that's one thing I, I always push back on. There have been a lot of companies successful that are the, the founders and now they're the, they have the company taken public. And, but I think that's actually a smaller percentage of actually the founder. So what good looks like, I would say it's a team. Um, mm. uh, I think that's quite an important part uh, that's flexible, adaptable, and is willing to walk away when the science doesn't work out. I'd say the science, um, you get to a point where you need to focus. And so that's why the team again comes important because you focus on the science and you know what questions you're asking early on to kill it. You almost want to kill the project first. And mm. if it survives that, that's when you start investing in the future of the program. And then just a general operational setting. I think a lot of people, um, I run Precarium. It's quite funny. I, run, I have a philosophy at Precarium that every single person in the organization is a project manager. Because no matter if yeah. your fundraising is a project, um, running our lead program into the clinic is a project, uh, running your financial operations is a project. So actually, I think a lot of people don't realize that that kind of mindset is so key, no matter what function you have early on in the company. So um, basically getting everyone to manage their own work or manage each other. Manage their own work and manage each other. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Um, and when did you start implementing that? 
So I, as soon as I took over, so I took over Precarium mm -hmm. CEO two years ago. So I'm not a, a founder CEO. I call myself mm -hmm. more of an operational CEO. So the type that comes in that Series B, yeah, that that goes through um, that transition point. I would say for a company that is quite key. So you go from you know the creative, the early stage scientific founder. Mm -hmm. um, there's this really cool article in the Harvard Business Review published in like the 1970s and 1972 by Larry uh, Greiner. And um, it's really interesting because what they propose at size of the organization and how it goes through evolutions and revolutions is still commonplace today. Mm -hmm. And one of their primary examples is you have the creative founder and they can only take the company so far until you have the business person, right? That knows yeah. how to set up accounting and quite the back end, I would say. Um, so yeah, so, so Precarium, I've been there, there two years now. Um, and yeah, it's been quite a journey. Was, is this your first time being like the CEO of a company? Yeah. And um, how was that transition going into this role, um, especially not having been like the CEO the entire progression? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I would say it was hard because I was the first C-level mm -hmm. um, of post-Series B round. Um, so it was myself and I had no C-suite at the time. And I'd actually say it's only probably until the past, so I just hired a chief operating officer. So it's probably only until the past few months have I actually feel like I'm an actual CEO. Mm -hmm. um, I've spent a lot of time setting the operations up so the company uh, is run really efficiently. Um, brought in my entire C-suite by self uh, recruiting them because I think it's quite an important role yeah. as your CSO, your CFO, your chief medical officer. Um, so I feel like right now is, is I could finally have my springboard, I would say, to be the, the fundraising type CEO that's mostly external. And what did happen to the founders? Um, really successful. So they moved on. So as a typical scientific founder, one moved on to, to found another company mm. actually here in the UK. Um, and uh, the prior CEO joined an investment fund. So oh, again, wow. um, so yeah, so. So you guys almost switched. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what got you started in like industry? Cause you did a postdoc. Um, why did you decide to go into like the commercial sphere rather than stay in academia? Naivety. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, so one of the biggest things is just wanted to learn the industry, right? We're always surrounded by pharmaceuticals. And I didn't understand how you get from A to B. Um, so each path in my history has taken a little bit of a part of that path. So clinical development, investment side, how you do transactions. Um, but yeah, I would say I transitioned just out of curiosity and I didn't see my future really, um, yeah in either academia or as a pharmacist, I could be in the cl clinical setting, so yeah. And um, from those experiences that you've had, um, how has that translated into, you know, things that you did when you first, like your first 100 days being CEO at the company, what were like the most important um, buckets for you to kind of achieve? Well, that's a hard one. Um... I would say just to keep everything moving forward. Mm. Um, I would say having the network 
that I have allowed me to go out and ask a lot of questions to either you know CEOs and using them as mentors of saying, okay, you were once a first time CEO. Mm. Tell me, tell me what you did well, exactly what you're asking me, and what what you wish you did not do. Um, so I think a lot of it was just spending a hundred days um, asking questions, both yeah. of the team um, and and creating the vision really. So so taking a step back and saying, okay, it's my company now. It's what do I see the vision for the future? So, And did, did you um, experience or expect any contention when you kind of came in? No. Um, I would say the board of directors was super supportive, mm -hmm. the team. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to just transparency with your team. Yeah. Um, we're a small team. We're 15. You know, everyone on our team knows our cash flow situation. Everyone on our team is, is well aware of our milestones and when we don't meet one, what, what do we have to do? So I think, um, I think the transparency always is a, a key uh, to, to running a, a small, uh, nimble team. That's interesting on the cash flow situation, um, because I feel like a lot of people would never do that. Um, what's your reasoning behind that? Because wouldn't it be demotivating for the team if they saw the cash flow kind of go down. And in a biotech, you obviously have to spend a lot um, because of the lab space and um, and like the development costs. Yeah, that twofold to the answer, actually, it's quite funny. So the first is I needed to tell the team that if they don't do science, I still have to pay for the lab. <laughs> so for me, it was a way to communicate. There is this, your fixed overhead cost in a business, right? Mm -hmm. So you, as you mentioned, lab space, which particularly in central London is ridiculously expensive. <laughs> um, so for me, it was being transparent, saying, okay, you know, if we don't move science forward, we still have to pay this cost. Mm -hmm. So I think it was important because I want to mentor our whole team to be able to run their own company one day because I think it'd yeah. be cool to have that type of team. Um, so, and the cash flow, you know, it's... So I was in big pharma, so I started my career at J&J. &J. My first uh, two years there, we went through four different transitions. So wow. we were Centacore originally, which is the founders of Remicade. Then we became Centacore Orthobiotech, so two companies merged. Mm -hmm. And then you became Janssen North America. And every six months, you had your town hall meeting, a new president or a new CEO. You know, like it was always changing. And so actually yeah. I thought that's how the industry was my first, again, two years experience in pharma. So just because you're in large pharma doesn't mean your job's more secure. Mm. Here I'm telling you, like you can be part of helping me fundraise. The data you're creating is going to allow us to raise money. Yeah. Um, so at all my town halls, I have a slide saying, how can you help fundraise for the company? And a scientific abstract or publication might be key to that fundraise. So I think it's, uh, it's quite important, but you're right. There are individuals, and this is where I think the size of the organization matters. Mm. I do think you get to a point in a large organization where you probably can't be as transparent. But the size of our organization, I feel as though, you know, we're one team. Um, yeah. And if you don't want to take that risk of being in a small company, then you're probably in, not in the right place to begin with. Um, yeah. It's just um, you might get individuals who feel like, scared i don't know like they they don't have the job security when the cash flow starts dipping but 
so biotech, we trade on data, right? Data mm. is our currency. You will never go to a biotech that has more than, on a good day, greater than three years runway. And that is a lot. Mm. I tell people I don't worry until we have less than three months. Three um, months of runway. But that's, again, why taking a step back to the question you asked me, like, what, is, what, what does good look like? Mm. And it's not just the team. It's having the confidence in the team and the data. Again, this is where the team can help fundraise the science. But that's why having the operational background is so important. So your board of directors, you have a strong board that can bridge loan you mm -hmm. some cash to get you to the next milestone. So it's really all about, um, it's like a puzzle, right? When can we get the milestone? How much does it cost to get there? And you get the right team in place to get there. So it's, yeah, it's, it's quite fun from that perspective. Um, and so this team, they were already there when you joined, or how many have you um, brought in over the 15 since? I would say about 50%. Um, but Precarium, we, we have uh, very little turnover, actually. I think mm. most people stay for about three to four years on average. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So you, you didn't feel like any of the hires made by the old founder CEO were not necessarily the picks you would have made? No, not necessarily. Um, we did change some positions over, but again, as biotech, it, it came down to mm. moving the company into a new phase. So going from preclinic to clinic, you have a different team. Yeah. You need a chief medical officer. You might need additional support for clinical operations. So I'd say any of the transition, the team came down to progressing the science more than, than the fit. Um, and is the idea to basically prove that the um, salmonella works in one indication and then kind of expand that out? Yeah, exactly. It's to de-risk the technology. So our lead program um, we've been working on for four years. So our first preclinical data, it'll be four years to get to clinic from, from that data point. So yeah, so it's really to, and again, looking at other Biotechs, you can work on the science, but eventually you then have to prove your your case. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully do a bit crazier each time you get in the pipeline. Um, what's What's been the most um, rewarding thing for you over the last two years with Precarium? I would say, one, it'll be an IND, hopefully in a week, we'll be filing. Um, I would say actually the most rewarding for me is setting up a team that doesn't need me. Mm. Like I, I finally feel, as I mentioned, now I have a chief operating officer, which was a real key hire I pushed for over the past um, yeah. year, is actually having a team where I can step away um, and they can make decisions and pretty much run the company without me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think that's a very rewarding because I've been able to put a lot of different personalities together understand what the company needs, and also, um, yeah, give them the opportunity to make mistakes because um, I think it's important that uh, if you give someone the authority for decision-making, you also, I now have to live with the consequences that yeah. some of those decisions might not be exactly the decision I would have made, mm. um, but then to support them at the board level that it was the right decision. So it's, it's interesting, it's quite fun. <laughs> I find that interesting because usually in um, maybe earlier stage startups, the founder's CEO does like a lot, right? Mm -hmm. It's like it's not really a management role at all. 
it's like a, basically every job that we don't have the money to hire for is our job now. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if the team were more used to that with like the old structure and then how you transition them into this kind of greater ownership. It's all about going, going back to the article I mentioned, the evolution of revolution. So the founder, co-founder business is just the first step. You know, companies go through this, this phase where there's so much work to be done that you almost need to direction and right. And that's where you start creating your departments or, mm -hmm. you know, the CEO is not just doing the finance and the R&D. Maybe they just focus on the finance and now they have someone focused on the R&D. Mm -hmm. So you go through these. In the revolution, I mean chaotic. These are, you can, so this happened to Precarium twice since I've been CEO. You can see the team not falling yeah. apart, but you can see the stress on the team because mm -hmm. I'll give an example. When our program went from the preclinic to clinic, it's a different team that needs to hold that asset and make the decisions. Yeah. Yet for the past three years, someone's baby, it became their baby, right? Yeah. For three years, they've nurtured it. They've created every data set that needed to support mm. them. They have to let it go. And that's not an easy thing um, in any sense, you yeah. can imagine as a scientist. So, so doing those transitions are actually quite difficult. Um, so yeah. And how did you manage the transition? Again, you just, I, I, I don't know how, it, it's something I love to do. It's probably my favorite part of my job. Um, yeah, you kind of have to take, you have to retract. Mm. You almost have to take a step back and say, okay, let's start again. And you have to, it's, it's a revolution, right? You, you write a new constitution every single time you stop. Think of what's, what uh, the chaos is, what's causing the chaos. And you write a new constitution. This is how we're going to move forward. Mm. Knowing that whatever you're writing as the new rules um, or structure or, or constitution, whatever you want to call it, it's going to go amiss again in the next one or two years, and you're going to have to do it again. So it never ends, this, this building and rebuilding, or evolution and revolution. And um, when, when you were in BC, did you get to like basically see a lot of different types of management styles, and how did that influence like the way that you do things now? I think, um, so the partner I worked for in VC was fantastic. He said, VC is an art, not mm. uh, science, right? So what I found out in VC was the management styles presentation, like what is key? Mm. Like, how do you get external parties interested in what you're doing? Um, so yeah, you see a, the scientific CEO, you see the business CEO. So there's, I don't think there's a cookie cutter, perfect type of CEO. Um, I think it's important that the CEO brings a team that fits, you know, the, so for instance, I have more of a, a I would say, finance BD background. Mm. So I tend to go heavier, a bit more on the science side of my management team to cover those aspects where um, I can cover, but I don't dive deep in. And, um, so yeah, so yeah, you see a, a lot of different, um, but the frustration I have with VCs, if I tell you my frustration, mm. is they always want serial CEOs. And yeah. rarely, and I'm sure running your startup, you've, you've seen this, um, rarely do they want first-time CEOs. Yeah. Um, so that was a, with my last fundraise, a big thing to, to chat about, like your first-time CEO. So, yeah. And they would say that to you? Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, it was quite an interesting conversation. And again, I mean, in all fairness, what they're looking for is making sure that um, you have the right person. That's because it is my responsibility mm. to build the right team um, and be the cornerstone for that team. So yeah, so it's 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 the chicken or the egg situation. Are you a successful CEO? Or first time CEO. Eventually, everyone had to be a first time CEO at one point. At some point. Um, and what do you think is the number one thing to do um, that you recommend someone to do when being the CEO of a healthcare startup? And can you give us a story of how you came to that learning? I would say going back to our first example is knowing what good looks like. Mm. And I go back even further is working at least or interning or spending a few years at a company that's ran well and finally mm. saying, okay, that's what a good company looks like. And you don't even have to dig too much into the science, but it's just seeing the team interactions, how they're structured, yeah. um, I think would be very, very beneficial. It doesn't have to be 10 years, you know, it could be mm. your first two, two, three years out of, particularly out of academia and being like, okay, this is what good looks like. The other thing about that that I find so important is you also then meet great people. And usually those great people move on to their own companies yeah. and you can either go with them or, um, you know, they can help you in the future. So it also starts broadening that early stage network that you'll need later on, whether as a founder or CEO. Is that um, kind of what you did when you first left your postdoc? Yeah, so, I, you know, I did the big pharma checkbox exercise. Um, yeah. And it, to be honest, it worked. I mean, almost to the extreme where I would never do the same processes in mm. Precarium. Um, but, you know, the systems that they use, how important communication to the external, um, you know, whether it's investors or shareholders. Um, yeah, because everything there is, you know, legally reviewed three times over before it oh, ever gosh. leaves, leaves yeah. the building um, to where, you know, we we're obviously can, can be a little bit more lax on that. But yeah, um, it doesn't have to be J&J. It could also just be, I think the ecosystem of the startups has mm. grown significantly. It could just be just a well-funded um, company that, you know, is, is doing something both you're passionate about. Because I think we realize that the salaries are not always aligned with large company yeah. salaries. Um, but also that there's great people there. Um, and you start to rise with the people that you meet with. So a lot of the people, either of your cohorts, of your graduate, graduating years, um, mm -hmm. you'll kind of all rise together and go to different companies. And some will start companies. Some will go on the investment side. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite cool. And what is the number one thing not to do? And can you give us a story of how you learned that? Yeah, so I actually had to write this one down because you asked me this the other day when we first met and I was thinking, what would I, and actually, um, it was really hard because I didn't want to say the typical, make sure you find the right co-founder and things that people hear. I would say, and I learned this too, because I, so I do boxing on the side, so I picked oh, up boxing as a hobby, yeah. um, actually fighting, and um, don't be the smartest person in the room would be mm. my best advice. Um, because if you are, you'll likely fail. And I yeah. think as you grow, um, you know, you have to be confident. And I think what you're doing with these 
podcasts are fantastic. You have to ask stupid questions. You have to be <laughs> yeah. confident enough to be able to ask, can you explain that to me? Um, yeah. And it was kind of, you asked me, you know, what's that transition point? Is That was a big transition point for me where I was willing to be, you know, I, I can do a cap table on the back of my hand. I can yeah. tell you a list of investors. I can do all that stuff. Um, but being confident to be like, I don't understand. Mm. And that will actually help you even more internally because now you're trying to tell your team, tell me why this is doing this experiment is important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so don't be the smartest person in the room and be okay asking the, the, the stupid questions. It, phenomenally, you get really good discussions out of them. <laughs> and when did that transition come for you of understanding that? Yeah, I would say probably earlier on in my career, um, I'd say VC probably taught me it the most because as an investor, you tend to be a bit more, um, broad, right? Yeah. You're not an expert in say, we're looking at different therapy there, you know, we're investors looking at just therapeutics, right? You're not going to be an expert in autoimmunity in each of the autoimmune diseases, such as, you know, GI or, um, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, then you have to take on a, a cancer deal, right? So it's yeah. completely different, different tech. Um, so I think VC really taught me that you had to be broad and then be able to ask those different types of questions and be confident because you don't have the time to, to dig into every deal the same. When, when you were a VC, did you used to give people advice on what to do with their companies? And also, how do you feel when VCs do that to you now? So no, I did not feel confident um, telling people yeah. what to do with their companies. Um, we were more yeah. of a co-investor. So we didn't mm -hmm. do company formation where mm -hmm. you tend to have a bit different of an investor type for company formation. So we were mm -hmm. co-investors. So no, I, I didn't give any particular advice. Um, now, oh, board management. You could do a whole podcast on board management <laughs> because that, that um, in and of itself is, is probably the hardest thing. Um, because board members tend to come into your board meeting, want to give you advice, and they leave and don't talk to you again for the next quarter. Mm. Um, I would say, similar to managing your team, it's just managing the personalities of the board and what they're looking for. Um, How big is your board? We have eight board members, so quite, quite wow. significant, yeah. Um, we almost have a, I almost have a pre-board meeting with each board member That's prior crazy. to the board meeting. Um, yeah. so that we can use a board meeting more for strategic. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, again, this is a whole operational excellence kind of thing yeah. that, that you learn um, early on. I find it interesting because I'm guessing a lot of this infrastructure in terms of how you do operational excellence didn't exist when you joined the company. Well, it was a smaller company. Yeah. It's exactly as we said, it's, uh, I think it, it's not unusual. It's yeah. just how the how companies are founded because the scientific founder is so key at the beginning yeah. of any company. Um, sometimes they stay on and sometimes they don't even join the company. Uh, but having their brain is, is really important. Um, but yeah, no, eventually you have to produce something yeah. uh, and break away a bit from the science to do that. And that that's quite a tough transition. Um, how have you kind of merged your operational style with what was already existing in the company and what people were used to? 
they call things the American way, you know, the, the terminology, it's a town hall, not yeah. all hands, it's quite funny. Um, yeah, I, you know, it, it, I had to build trust amongst the team yeah. that the decisions I was making were for the benefit of the team and the organization. Um, I'll give an example where um, we've closed our funding round in January and actually I downsized the company on the back of a funding mm -hmm. round. Um, and I had to tell the team why, because everyone said, well, we just closed 30 million. Why do we have to now make mm. people redundant? Um, and there was a couple of technical things that had happened that also caused us to make that decision. But, um, you know, I explained to them, again, cash flow. I said, look, if yeah. I kept the team the way it was running, we only had till X. And with our yeah. delays and everything happening, we need until Y. And the only way to do that was to actually downsize the company. So I think being transparent has allowed me mm. to build a lot of trust with the team. Um, and, and therefore, when making decisions, you know, they know it was a hard decision to make. Um, yeah. But it was for, like, not just wanting to do it, but actually for, for not, I don't want to say benefit of the company, because that sounds, but really to help this therapy have the highest potential of success. That's really how I'd look at it. That's awesome. Um, I just have one more question for you. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the number one impact you want to leave on the world today with Precarium? Yeah, so Precarium, um, being that we are in the synthetic biology field for therapeutics, is I truly believe that synthetic biology will solve a lot of the cost issues that we currently have today, and particularly in cancer. Um, so with Precarium, I hope that we can actually create sustainable therapeutics um, where everyone in the world can actually benefit from cures and particularly living cures. So in addition to the Health Creators podcast, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our vendor selection and CRO databases, um, conference selector tool, and also investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to Nurut for clinical development and a community of founders building in healthcare.